Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I am pretty fucking great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. How was your birthday? My birthday was honestly the best. Yeah. Um, it was really great. Uh, we rented a car. We drove around. We social distanced, hung with a bunch of friends, like, all around the city. We It was, like, 15 hours of seeing friends. Yeah. Which is... Uh, one very typical us yes. because we are psychopaths <laughs> and it's like, oh, you're going to wake up at 830 in the morning to drive to Brooklyn to see five friends in Brooklyn before noon and then pick up our brother and then go to lunch and see more friends. I mean, let's, like, let's, it was it was you might have woken up at 830. I was awake at like five. Yeah. Again, psychopaths. <laughs> but that being said, it's it's owing to the fact that New York has been wearing masks. It's yeah. owing to the fact that we have been so inside this entire time that we've been able to do this and so um it was a it was a big relief yeah it was a lot of fun you know in the case that maybe podcasts last you know a century from now or something like that and people revisit this and they're like what was life like back in the quarantine days what are you even talking about the pandemic of 2020 i want people to know that uh there's a lot of people in the united states of america who did not adhere to social distancing, mm-hmm. to quarantining, to wearing masks. I want you to know that these two podcasters did. That's right. That's, we were, we were inside it. for six months, did yeah. not see anybody. And so uh, as as my brothers, Dan and Jeff, do on a yearly basis, the party is always around them. This year, Jeff had the great idea to take the party to the people. It was still around me. Like, let's be and, let's be clear about this. Yeah, yeah, from six feet away. Yeah. And and we did. We, we drove around, had a nice time, and it felt... Normal. Felt normal. Got you know? to see a bunch of people. Got to see Amina. Who we was did on the podcast see Amina Tuso on the podcast today. New York Times bestselling author. The book is called The Big Friendship. She and Ann Friedman wrote it together. Amina has been on the podcast, uh, I want to say, about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yes. She was during the 12 days of podcasts. Mm-hmm. We were living in our old apartment here on the Upper West Side. And uh, she's got a great story. I highly recommend that episode, should you have some time and I think a lot of people do have time, but this episode here today is to celebrate her. It's to celebrate her New York Times bestselling book. It's to celebrate friendship. It is to celebrate uh, good humanity and being nice to one another and enjoying our time, even though we are apart from everybody else. This is a very fun episode, a lot of laughs. And and again, it was really nice to see her in person. Shout out to Amina for so many things, including the fact that she left homemade cookies at the bottom step of her stairs for you yeah not just like just in i mean like, you make it sound like she left trash at the bottom of this no no she she made she made great cookies great cookies put them in a ziploc bag mm-hmm. and gave them to you for your birthday she also made margarita mix and then said hey by the way it's no good very bitter yeah very bitter yeah you have to like put some stuff in it to fix it our friend david Cho. When he saw that, he was like, what kind of friend is this? <laughs> Everyone knows you don't drink. Yeah. But shout out to Amina, who is a great friend. And it was it was really nice, Jeff, to celebrate you and Dan on your birthday to uh, to bring a little bit of normalcy into this very unnormal year. Yeah, for us, everybody else is still going through it. Yeah. So listen, if you're in Texas and Arizona and Florida and... Alabama, Ohio, Alaska, <laughs> Arizona, Arkansas, California, every, Colorado, Connecticut. Er, California, my yeah. God. Not, not Connecticut, I guess. Everywhere in this country... Guys, I, I was reading something today where it was like, if everybody was masked up, yep. if 90% of the businesses decided to shut down, if the government could give money to the people, if we all settled in for six to eight more weeks, mm-hmm. the virus would be done. Eric, I am shocked. <laughs> I am it's, it's, shocked it's, that we have... This is literally the same conversation we've been having since March. I know. It, it really is nuts. But this is the world we live in. Um, do your part out there. Jeff, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, I'm not alone in this. I've seen this a lot lately. And it is pretty scary, honestly, in 2020. Um, the anti-Semitism, the vitriol towards Jews um, that is rooted in Nazi propaganda from a century ago that this can exist now whether it's passive or active is um, wrong and whether it's entertainers or athletes or politicians or people who have a little platform 
or is no platform. When it is said and it is spread, it is dangerous and and it has to be it has to be stopped. Yeah, I mean, well, people, you know, you have to speak up. You know, you, when you see it, you have to say something. Yeah. In, in the same way that, like, if there's racist stuff, we are very vocal, I think, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. And I think that people, um, you know, sort of take it for granted for for Jews who some have done well, a lot haven't. And um, and you have to. And I want to say this, too. It's it's a tricky thing being Jewish in entertainment. Yeah. It's trickier being Jewish in a black community. I think we spoke on this with Dave One and A-Track when we talked about the J Electronica stuff. And we spoke with Peter Rosenberg about it when we had him on, both during quarantine radio. Um, You take your lumps and you don't outwardly complain about things and you understand where people are coming from to a point. But when you're marked as evil, when you are said that you are the enemy... And when you are not looked at as the allies that you are, it is time to speak up and it is time to say something. And it is to say to Wiley or to Jay Electronica and Deshaun Jackson and Nick Cannon. I mean, it, it goes on and on. That you are, you are wrong. And we are your friends and we fight alongside each other. And I, I so appreciated, and I'm going to be honest, the handful of people who reached out to us um, and we weren't looking for people to contact us or, or whatever, but friends of ours did reach out and say, Hey, we love you. Or can you please explain this point further or fill me in on things that I do not know, or I'm here for you. And I didn't know I needed it. I think, um, for a long time, it's you just build up this this thick skin, you know? People make jokes. People say worse things, and you just take it. But when people do reach out and they stick up for you, and there were some people who stuck up generally for the Jewish community on social platforms, and that, that was very meaningful. So um, to those of you who, who have issues with us, Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah. And th- and that's just what it is. And for all of our friends out there, we love you and we fight alongside of you and we hope that you love us and, and will fight along with us. Jeff, today on the podcast is Amina Tuso and uh, it's a great episode like we said. Also, guys, right now at patreon.com slash it's the real, you can join us. You can be a part of this movement. It's very exciting what we're doing now, what we're planning for the future, and uh, we want you to be a part of that. So contribute. Anything you can, $2, $3 more. And uh, and if you're interested in really supporting us by wearing our clothing that is designed by Jeff, that is marketed by us, and it is produced by our friend named Gil, um, you can go to itsthereal.com slash shop. T-shirts shipping out this week. Anything else, Jeff? Uh, that is it. All right. When do you want to get into this episode? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Deactivating Twitter, a.k.a. R.I.P. My Mentions. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Searching for the Cure, a.k.a. Mask Jeeves. It's Amina Tuso, a.k.a. Christian Amanpour. Call me back, a.k.a. <laughs> wow, what a terrible day. <laughs> 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 yes, yeah, your third favorite podcast to waste time with it the real. <laughs> <laughs> Amina, oh what's gosh. happening? Are so much energy, I just cannot, cannot handle. Like, fully cannot handle. Listen, uh, we've been up for three weeks straight. <laughs> Amina, you are the second New York Times best-selling author that we have had in two weeks. It is you and Rick Ross. So, congratulations, New York Times what? best-selling author <laughs> Amina Tuso. How does it feel? Um. I thought that Logic was the only rapper that's ever made it to the New York Times bestselling list. You're telling me Rick Ross is a bestseller? Wait, how did I not know that Logic had a bestseller? 
Oh, Logic was like, he was definitely the first. So I'm shocked about Rick Ross. <laughs> well, listen, uh, you are in great company. I personally changed your information in my phone to New York Times bestselling author. What's the most ostentatious way you think uh, you should announce yourself as that now? Like, is it a vanity license plate, perhaps? Like, N-Y-T-B-S-L-R? And then, and then, and then Instagram it? I think that... Um, People should be embarrassed about all sorts of accolades, so this is not one you should be announcing to the world. It's a very flattering, but it's also like, are you kidding me? It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Amina, let's talk about your new book, The Big Friendship, which you wrote with Ann Friedman, your friend and business and podcasting partner on Call Your Girlfriend. When did you guys actually sign your book contract? We signed our book contract on the day I turned third. No, that's not true. We we submitted our book proposal the day I turned 33. So in April 2017, 2016. Sorry, I'm wow. like bad at math. I'm 35 now, so minus two. <laughs> well, 2018, in- 2018, 2018. You are really bad at math. <laughs> yeah, I'm very bad at math. So I believe that we signed the book contract in like early 2019 something like that so in those corresponding one and a half two years however long it's been because we're not great at math either uh how heavy was the burden of writing a book yo it was heavy you know it's like um it took us like a while to write that book proposal if i'm honest like we've been working on this book in some way shape or form um for three years like for sure because, you know, it's like, you got to like come up with the idea, you got to strategize the idea, then you have to like write the proposal, you got to sell that you got to figure it out. So we, I would say it took us like three years total. And from the time that we actually like butts in chair, like started writing the book, I wrote the book with my um, friend, Ann Friedman. I would say that was over a year of um, really intense writing periods. Anne lives in LA and I live in New York. So we really had to, um, you know, we had to really uproot our lives to go on these really intense writing retreats where we would spend like a couple of weeks um, or months like living in the same place. Like in one stint, I lived in LA for three months. And in those periods, we would be writing every single day. But what, okay, so you sign a contract, which means like to get all of the money you have to turn in you know, said said product, right? So you owe Simon & Schuster that. Um, You have an editor that you're working with and and you seemingly have some type of like deadline and you have to turn things in and you owe your your editor that. Um, But but ultimately, you know, you guys have the idea, this is your life. How, like, who are you writing this for? Oh, man, I want to go back really quickly to the contract because I feel that so many people are not transparent about book contracts. Um, So in a book contract, it tells you like how many words, you know, like the thing is, it tells you like a vague idea of what you're writing to. They don't really like super hold you to the idea if you, you know, like because in editing, it'll change. But we had a contract to write a memoir. I think our word count was like 70,000 words. And then they tell you like when the deadline is. Mm -hmm. And um, there's all of this like, contract shit in it our deadline i'm pretty sure was like a year they gave us a year to write the book and we did we had to ask for an extension but we still wrote it within the year so that was nice Mm -hmm. and also the contract also outlines how the book payments happen which so many people do not talk about this book payments are bananas like (laughs) you get paid in like three to four installments usually it's like you know 25 percent or some sort of percentage exactly when the contract is signed and then you get a payment um, when you submit the book. So the only reason I'm bringing this up is because this is super important. It is possible that the only payment you will get is that first payment, you yeah, know, the one when yeah. you sign the contract. And so it like behooves you to turn in the book because you're not going to get paid until like your next payment's not going to come in until the book is turned in. Yeah, so it yeah. takes you 10 years. It takes you 10 years. It's going to take you 10 years. And then they also pay you, uh, I think, like uh, when the paperback comes out. Yeah, there's like a whole structure for how for how they do it. But so anyway, that's the deal. Um, you know, for us, we we knew that we wanted to write a book about friendship because it's such a central theme of our podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, that we host. It's also just like an idea that we talk about all the time. Like Anne and I are 
you know, like we're very solid friends, but also we think a lot about what would the world look like if friendship was at the center um, of, you know, the important conversations we have. If instead of just telling people that the only way to be an adult is to be like in a healthy romantic partnership or, you know, to be like a family member of someone, we were just like, no, we're like being, um, having healthy friendships is also a valid expression of love and friendship. And so we knew that we wanted it to be a memoir, but like kind of like our podcast where we interview a lot of experts, we we knew that we wanted to bring that voiceover. So it's a memoir, but it has a lot of expert interviews and a lot of research woven into it. You know, this book is really an examination about friendship, but unlike most friendships, you guys were also roommates. You were business partners. Can you talk about your definition of friendship over the past year and a half? Yeah, you know, the, the so the book is called Big Friendship, which is a, a term that we invented essentially because we, part of what's so hard about friendship is that the vocabulary is so nebulous, you know, like your friend is literally someone that you met one time in college and you added them on Facebook because <laughs> you needed them to give you a paper. And also your friend is someone like me and Anne where we're like, no, no, we're building a life together. You know, it's just like the, the definition is just really sprawling. And we, you know, we really wanted to focus on adult friendship specifically. We're like, you know, I like our podcast tagline is a long distance podcast, like for besties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we use the word bestie. We use the word best friend. All of that is nice, but it's also very infantilizing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I like, I'm fully in my mid thirties now. Like I, uh, yeah, I'm trying to have like adults, more adult experiences and expressions of, um, of how I feel. And so I think that it was really important to come up with a term that was about a mature friendship and a friendship that's really rooted in the future, you know, where we're saying, okay, we've known each other for a, a decade plus, but we want to know each other for many, 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 many decades. And we know that that is going to take work because, you know, life just gets busy, like shit, like, you know, this shit just happens. Yeah. yeah. And how do you keep prioritizing the people in your life? And it turns out that uh, you just have to keep showing up and you both have to do the work. How have you in the last five or six months reevaluated friends and friendship on a personal level? I mean, like nothing like a pandemic to like clear the decks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I listen, I think that like we are all constantly reevaluating like our friendships, like who shows up, who doesn't show up, but more importantly, like how you show up for other people and how um, you know, like I I've just been like so struck by the fact that I am not present in my relationships the way that I really want to be. And I'm working really hard to address that. But, um, you know, this moment is hard. It's hard for everyone. So I am trying to have grace for other people and hoping that they have grace for me as well. Well, so friendships can't all be perfectly reciprocated in terms of time and energy. But, but if you feel like you're putting more effort in then the other person, should you feel bad that it's not equal or, or should someone like manage expectations? You know, we actually write about this in the book, this concept about stretching, um, where it's like the give and take of friendship. It is never going to be equal. Like you're never going to, it's not a bank. Friendship is not a bank. You're not going to like make equal like withdrawals and deposits. But I think that over a lifetime, it can feel like it was worth it, you know? And so I think that the the only thing that I would say is just keep talking about it. If you feel like you're putting in more than you're getting, you should be able to say that and it shouldn't be like threatening to your relationship and see how it is. Also, life is long. You might be putting in a lot, but who knows? Maybe in 10 years, you will be the one that will be receiving a lot from that same friendship. So, you know, I, I would say like, don't be thinking about it as a tit for tat, but also... Um, um, if you're not able to talk about it, that's that's more of the flag. I did see that you guys went to therapy at some point to fix the problems in your friendship. But like a lot of people will just say we grew apart. We had a falling out. Why didn't you guys just give up? Well, we didn't give up because, uh, you know, I think that when you have a friendship like ours that involves like paperwork, we're business married. It it's harder to run away immediately, you know, like you actually, I'm like, nobody can pack up their bags and just like leave. So, um, so I think that that was definitely part of it, but also because, you know, that relationship to Anne, like it means a lot to me. So even if we are not going to 
be together, um, you know, it's important to talk about. So when we went to therapy, I would not say it was to fix our relationship. It was really to find out what was wrong. And in finding that out, we were able to fix it. I feel like adult friendships are really just like kickball teams and dodgeball teams <laughs> that you have to do for like work. <laughs> Zog sports. Yeah. 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 You know, it's not, it's not like a, there's this like romantic idea that, you know, like when you're friends with someone, everything just happens so easily and you make time and you make space for them or whatever. And I'm like, no, you need to schedule shit. You need to think about like, when was the last time I reached out to someone? There's so much to do. And the other demands of life are also getting really intense. Like work only gets more intense. You're Romantic relationships, if you have them, get more intense. Your relationship with your family also gets more intense because you have to put in more time and effort there. So, you know, we're, we're all juggling many things. Is being a friend different in New York than it is in Los Angeles? I mean, I don't know. I don't live in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you had to. I, yeah. You know, I, th I think that it's different. You know, like there is – I can't speak to other places, but I, I think that in New York – there is a kind of like very superficial friendship that is possible, you know, where there are people that you see all the time. Like you just see them in your scene. Mm -hmm. You'll see them at a party. You'll see them at a thing. You are constantly running in the same circles as them, but you have never been to those people's houses. You like do not get in touch with them outside of, you know, the scene stuff. And, and it's hard. It's really, it's really hard. And I think that like, you know, New York, uh, New York, like expressions of FOMO are also like very specific, you know, so it's so easy to feel like you're not a part of something. And the truth is that if you actually like sat down and you started digging into like, oh, what is real? Like, who's a real human being here? Who has their feet on the ground? Which of these two people that I think are really close friends are friends? I think that if you start to be really honest, you start to really understand that a lot of things are just a mirage, you know? And that, that we all have who no are friends. Close friends. Yeah. yeah, like people who are close friends, like they put in the work, they're kicking in on each other's couches. They are a really integral part of each other's lives. And it's not some like shit for clout, you know? I read the excerpt that was posted in the cut and you talk about how Anne hosted a party at her house for someone else and the entire guest list was white except for you and that that was a big issue because black people shouldn't be the only ones thinking about race. Anne's defense was that it wasn't her party and she didn't make the list. How do you think she should have handled that differently? I mean, I think that if an event is happening in your house, uh, you are responsible for the party. <laughs> you know, like you don't get to outsource your house to, to like white supremacy um, <laughs> and like not pretend that it's happening. You know, th that incident, honestly, is not... Um, it's not a big dramatic incident. Like I want to make that really clear. Like, the, like we're not in the plot of get out. Like Anne is not like some <laughs> secret racist. It's not what's going on here. Well, that's good. I think, <laughs> yeah, but I think that it's worth saying. I think that whenever people think about racism, they think that it has to be like a hood or there, you know, like there's like some, you know, someone calls you a racial slur, but I was like, I think that the, the point that we are trying to make there is that if you're a white person and you are only around white people, that is not a default. That was a choice. Like being around only white people is a choice and you don't get to say that, you know, it just like kind of accidentally happened for demographic reasons. It's like, mm, that's, that's not fair. And so, you know, to your point of like, how should she have handled it? I don't know how she should have handled it in real, you know, like in real time, I'm like, uh, it's her house, it's her like gathering. But I think that like, again, for me, it goes back to when we were talking about it, um, she should have been the one to bring it up because she noticed it. Oh, she did notice it. I, my, my impression was that she did not notice it. Um, oh, I'm saying that like she should have, that that's how she should have handled it is that she should have noticed it and she should have been the one to say something about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Jeff and I sold the TV show in, in 2015 and then it's, you know, in you understand in selling that, that there are going to be other chefs in the kitchen. You know, there's going mm -hmm. to be, you know, executive producers or the network or whoever who, right. who wants to, you know, add their two cents. Or call Rick Ross just Rick. Yeah, which was a huge, <laughs> a huge, huge problem for us. Um, but but when we, you know, sold it, you, you understand that that's going to happen. 
but it's it's like this is our baby this is our voice and no one's going to understand it like us when you're writing a book and you have an editor and you have a publisher and you have you know people to answer to what happens to how much do you dilute who you are and what you know your memoir is you know i am really proud to say that this project so far at least in the book iteration of it i feel very um I feel really happy and proud that it is not diluted at all. And I will tell you why it is because there were two of us, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that um, you're so right. When the minute that you start like having agents, managers, editors, you know, the, you know, us, we're just like people where we've been grinding on our own. And when the support comes, it's something that you're super excited about, but you also realize that, you know, it means that now there's more input. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think a thing that we were really successfully able to do, Anne and I, was to have a really united front about our vision. And that was only possible for us because we've been working on our podcast for six years. You know, I'm like, you can't tell a shit. Like, yeah, we yeah. we know our audience better than anyone. We know ourselves better than anyone. But also, we felt really empowered to push back and to say no and ultimately, I think that, you know, in um, this is not true for everything, you know, like, I can't speak to how this would work if you were making a TV show or if you're making whatever, but with a book um, and with this project specifically, it was easy to, um, it was not easy, but it was, uh, it felt really empowering to push back and to also realize that um, feedback is just feedback. Yeah. Like, you don't actually have to take it, you know? Absolutely. And and that you also you also need to like push them to explain to you what they're doing. Like we had our book cover was something that was probably like the hardest thing to like, you know, there were too many cooks in the kitchen of the <laughs> book cover and we had such a specific vision for what we wanted. We both hate dust jackets. Like I hate a dust jacket so much. <laughs> Didn't want it. We knew exactly the designer we wanted to work with. We knew the vibe that we were going for, you know, but like in the book industry, they have very um, specific, like, also visions for what they want that to look like. And As we, in, like, something's going to be more eye-catching on a shelf than something else? Yeah, they were, you know, the way that they do it, everything is by um, comp, you know, a comparison. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, well, like, books like this have sold more. And you're like, <laughs> uh, that is not how people can, you know, like, I'm like, much respect to the book marketers, much respect <laughs> to the book marketers. But, you know, I there's a reason that a lot of books are just a red cover. If you just start looking on your shelves, just start thinking about the colors that you see all the time. Yeah. And if you're going to work by comp, you know, I'm like, I'm sure that it's great. But for me, I'm like, I'm a creative person. I know what I want. And also, I know my audience pretty well in that I know what they want. And for Anna, it was the same way. And we pushed back a lot. And it was a really hard conversation. But the thing that we also realized is that a lot of authors, um, this is the point where they cave, you know, because pe- the other people just tell you that they're experts. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, like two things can be true, that the publisher is very, um, you know, they're like they will bring in their expertise about what they want. But I also think that people who are, um, who are writers a lot of times are not involved in a very serious conversation about visuals. And, you know, and for us, it was a little bit easier. It's like, Anne used to work at magazines. I used to work in tech. Like we, we both have like a language for the kind of visuals that we want. We know how to talk to designers. We know how to talk about design, but truly the only reason any single time we got what we wanted when we wanted it is because there were two of us. I don't know how I would have done it alone. I would have probably had a meltdown, but when there are two people, you can really have a united front for what you want. You can push back. And I also think that, you know, even if the people tell you that they're experts, you have to keep asking them questions because they have to convince you that what they're saying to you is worth it. You know, because I was like, if someone gave me a compelling reason for why, like, I don't know, like our book cover should have been read, for example, if they had said like, oh yes, here's the research that we have, or here's the number that we have, or we, you know, like we know this to be true. I'm not a fool. I'm going to listen to that. But if the answer is literally just like, "Mm, like, this is how we like to do it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, then I'm like, there is room for debate there. And at the end of the day, you know, it's it's your name on your product. So you should be proud of it. And yeah. I wanted to be proud of the thing that we put out. When we sold our TV show to MTV a million years ago, you know, it was our story. It was our experience. It was it was our show. And we had these two showrunners who they wouldn't defer to our expertise. Um, they thought that they knew how to get this show made in a way that we did not. And so it became a, this this 
conversation of between Eric and myself, how much do we want this to be made versus how much we want to have our integrity intact. And we had to find this balance in being good coworkers and good clients to our management. And honestly, one of my biggest regrets is that we we were afraid to be perceived as difficult. Man, I'm so glad that you were using the word difficult because I think that, you know, that label is hard, like depending on who you are. And I know that like for me as a black woman, that is something that people already assume about me. You know, like they're just, you hear all the time in creative conversations, like, oh yeah, that woman's difficult or that black woman is difficult or whatever. So I'm very heartened to know that like uh, white dudes can be difficult also. Yeah, or, um, or be afraid but, of being difficult. Right, I mean, like, right. I think that's yeah. the bigger thing. Like it, it's, it's like you, you don't want to be perceived as something that you're not. And I know that that's like, obviously you live with that every day, but like, I think that it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely like a thing. It's so real, you know, and the thing that you're saying about the TV show, man, I feel that so much because, you know, like, obviously, like, I want you guys to have a TV show and whatever, but I also want you to have it on your own terms. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, if you are a creative person, the thing that you should really ask yourself is what do you want? Like, do you want a television show at all costs? Or do you want the television show that you want to make? Because those two things are different and they will guide how you do what you do. And for me, I, like, I just could not live with making something that was not the thing I wanted to make, even if it like made me popular or it made me famous or it meant that more people encountered my work. If that was not the thing that I wanted to make, I would never be happy making it. So stepping away is so much easier, you know, having that integrity. But I have to be really honest that it's, you know, it's a, it's also like a privilege to be able to make that choice. Sure. You know, to say like, yeah, like I, you're just like, I, this is not what I want to do. And I think that I'm going to have other opportunities to figure out something else, or maybe in the future I can make this, but I really understand how, you know, a lot of people are like strapped and they feel that they don't have a choice. And so I don't have any judgment for people who are in those situations because it's less about them and about the system that just like enables how, you know, stuff is created. Absolutely. But, but I think that like, for me, like I could not go to bed at night feeling that I was working on something that was not the thing I wanted to make. Like I, I just like could not do it. No, no matter the amount of money. Amina, uh, I'd like to talk about your audiobook recording. Obviously, you're a podcaster, so you sit in front of a microphone on the regular, but how different is it to do an audiobook? Um, you know, reading is very different than talking. I have only respect now for people who read audiobooks because it turns out that I don't know how to read. I'm the Jordan Catalano of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, that became really apparent. You know, also recording in a pandemic meant that we were recording at home. So you're really just reading to nobody except <laughs> to yourself. And I was producing myself and recording myself. It was, yeah, it was not a very pleasant uh, situation. Probably in a studio, it's different. But I think that, uh, you know, much respect should be given to the people who read books because it is a performance. And uh, I don't know how to do that. Was there any word or phrase that just, you know, you tripped over time and time again? Oh, everything. It turns out that if I like next time I write a book, I will be writing it um, in like with that in mind <laughs> that I have to read it out loud. And I'm telling you, all of the word choices will be different. <laughs> Was there ever a thought that maybe you would get someone else to read instead of you guys? Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> you should have gotten like DJ Khaled. <laughs> Well, if you you think if I can't read the DJ Khaled, like, okay, respect. We can certainly appreciate a multi-hyphenated career. You're a podcaster. You're an interviewer. You're a businesswoman. You're an audiobook voice artist. Where in the order do you put author? Woo, um, I can't believe it. Um, you know, I it's funny the the way that I always answer the what do you do question is I'm always like, hmm, what paid me the most money last year? <laughs> so I I I am a I am a proud author. That is the paycheck that has carried me uh, through uh, 2019 and 2020. Uh, sh shout out to books. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's not something that I ever thought I would do. Um, not that I thought I, I wouldn't do it, but it had never occurred to me that I could write a book. So I'm I'm really um, I'm really pleasantly surprised and like so excited that I got to do with Anne, you know, who is my longtime collaborator and someone who is such a good writer and such a good, um, someone who just like expresses her opinion so well. 
in yeah. so many ways. And so, you know, this is just like one of those things that where I'm like, yeah, friendship is really beneficial because I have really good friends who are writers and who are authors and they were possibility models for me. You know, I like, I did not have that imagination for myself and through watching so many of my friends work so hard and see how rewarding that process was to them. I, you know, I really believe like, Oh, maybe I can do this. And then I actually did it. So, yeah, you know, French friendship, always uh, pushing you, pushing you to be like the best, the best self that you could be. It's super important for you and Anne to have your voice and to stick up for each other and to put out the product that you guys, you know, believe in, and it is your voice, but who is the person, maybe it's not your editor or, or the publisher or anybody at, you know, Simon and Schuster or whatever, who's somebody that you trusted that you would bring material to and you're just like, you get this and, you know, are we on the right track? Oh, man. So we, um, in addition to having our editors at our publisher's house, we hired an external editor, which is something that's a, a practice that is really, really common, actually, but people always whisper about it. They're wow. just like, ah, like I, I have this other editor and it's obviously someone you have to pay money to. So not everyone can afford to do that that has a book deal. But for us, it was so important to do that because, you know, even if your book publisher is really, really, really good, the, the editors there, um, we wanted someone that would be inside of the process of the book with us every single day. You know, we're just like, okay, we just finished writing. Like, who can we turn to or and not have to wait? Like, you know, days and days or or someone that was working on like a lot of other um, things at the same time. So we hired this woman called Carrie Fry, who is amazing, like amazing, 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 amazing. I cannot recommend her enough. Her website is blackcardiganedit.com. You should look her up. But Carrie, um, you know, she was a managing editor at The All, a website that we love. And yes. she has like edited some some of the like best writers on the Internet that, you know, and she was really our brain trust in this project. You know, she was she was in the book at the same time as us. And so we we had a schedule with her. And the other reason that it was so good to work with her was because of that, because, you know, there was the built in accountability of great. Carrie has cleared her schedule for the next couple of months for us to work on this. And so we had deadlines. It was like, you got to get her this chapter in time for her to read it and give feedback and do the next thing. And so I think that creating an accountability structure like that is also really important because it means that, you know, you're not putting it off because you, you're not up for it or you just don't want to do it or, you know, life happens. But it, it was important for me as someone who works from home mostly and works on my own projects for a project that was this big to have a lot of boundaries and, you know, like safeguards around it and mm -hmm. having that kind of schedule and someone else that I have to turn stuff into. Because otherwise, your book publisher, if you don't want to talk to them until the, you're ready to turn in the book, you <laughs> don't have to talk to them, you know? Really? If the book is due in two years, yeah, you could just submit the book in two years. Like, uh, and a lot of people do that. Everyone has a different style. Some people are like, oh, can I email you chapters? And then other people are like, uh, like I'll talk to you, you know, like uh, in two years when I, when I turn in the whole project. And I know myself, I can't do that. Well, one more thing about the TV show was that when we sold it, the person who bought it left like a week later. And so we're dealing with this new team, the new team we checked in with for three drafts. And it's not a, a constant partnership. It wasn't like they were understanding our vision. The people who we were checking in with a regular basis, our showrunners, they did not trust us. And so it was sort of fucked from the start. You know, I think that it would have been really good to have somebody who we did trust who was part of this process from the from the get-go yeah you, you know you need some sort of like project management i think when you're working on something and especially if you're working with someone else because you know like with me and Anne, we work really well together we've been like collaborators for six years at this at this point and we have a good system for the two of us and, you know, but there's just like stuff that you need to know. Like for me, I don't work well in the morning. Like Anne is the morning brain. I am the evening brain. And it's beautiful <laughs> that like across our time zones, you know, it's almost like you're passing a baton to someone when I'm, <laughs> when I'm twilighting, like she's ready to, to pick it up. But I think that um, 
you know, you also just like need to know yourself. I know that I do not work well without deadlines. I need a deadline for something. If you just say like, oh, turn it in whenever you want, I will turn that shit in in 3035. <laughs> 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 like nothing shakes me. And so I think that you just have to be really honest about what you need and what are the conditions that you do your best work in. And for me, you know, I'm like, I need deadlines. I need some sort of project management. And I also need the built-in shame of not disappointing someone. And that's what, um, you know, that's how I do my best work. I was like, if I owe someone something, I will, I will do it. If you were on The Apprentice. <laughs> oh, my God. What would your role be? Would you would you volunteer to be project manager or would you be like, because, I mean, they're the ones who get the win, but they also could get the loss. <laughs> you know, I would pro- like I was a project manager in my old job and I, I really like it. I think I am good at it. It's always better to project manage someone else's project than your own, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I were on The Apprentice, which I would never be a television show. <laughs> right, um, sorry. You would be on Celebrity Apprentice. Family, <laughs> the, the most despicable family in the world. Uh, yeah, probably I'd be a project manager. You know, because I, you just, you need to know what you like. I like to be in charge. Like, that's just what's going on. I like to know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, but like, who also wants to go home because Piers Morgan and Meatloaf can't agree <laughs> on who is the lead chef in Chef Boyardee's soup kitchen? for the week like what a stupid well, premise. The problem i mean there were so many problems with that tv show and it's crazy to think that you know in looking back that the president of the united states like truly was just this guy indiscriminately firing firing people on network television but <laughs> there was no there was no point to it you know no, like he would he wouldn't yeah, pay they attention literally to what put was happening him in a big chair they put him in a big <laughs> chair and they made him look presidential and that's how they like tricked the whole country into believing that he knows what he's doing and put the kids on either side of him too yeah well um, it used to be uh caroline and the old guy <laughs> yeah but look, and then the old guy like got too old and the lady like filed a sexual harassment lawsuit or something isn't it wild that everyone was warned about this and and here we are it was like this is the disaster that we all were told was going to happen man it, like what a fucking disaster yeah it really is so how are you doing <laughs> you know i was telling you before we got on the phone that i'm actually having a really good day today so i am going to um i'm really going to try to stay in that place um, quarantine has been really hard. It has been so hard. My mental health is in shambles every single day. I, you know, like it's hard not to see the people that you like. I, I miss going to dinner. I miss just like bumping into a friend on the street. I, I miss, I, I'm terrified that this means that we're never going to meet new people ever again, you know, because yeah. like who, you know, is who, you know, I just, yeah, the, the, the dread and the anxiety, my family is in like, you know, it's like we are, we live around the world, my, like in Belgium, in Guinea and in Canada, we are locked out from seeing each other yeah. in this really real way. And, you know, and that's just not me. It's like all of us, we are all going through this intensely fucked up and hard thing together. The government has just left us to fend for ourselves. And you know, it's it's just like when is it going to end? So, I you know, I like I'm not the only one going through that. We are literally all going through that. We are in yeah. a once in a lifetime fucking global pandemic. But today, weirdly, today Friday, I don't know why. I'm in a good mood. I'm having a good day. I'm gonna clean my house, and I'm going to like really just hang on to that feeling. Does the the books release? You know, having something tangible, getting to the the end of a deadline, and and having it you know, giving your gift to the world, does that uplift you? Does that like give you some sort of sunshine that maybe did not exist in the last five months? Man, I am the wrong person to ask for this because my my relationship to all of my work is that I like to put it out there, but then I just like bury my head in the sand. And I, I yeah, I, I don't know. It's strange. I've never released a book before, so I, I don't know. Um, I feel it just feels surreal. It feels surreal that I've been working on this thing with Anne for so long and other people are reading it. Um, you know, and more than anything, I just feel really sad that Anne and I are not together, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so I think that that's the overwhelming feeling. It's imagine if you two were, um, locked out from each other during the pandemic, like that's what it would be like. And that's what it's like for me. Like my person, 
That's the person I work with every day that I love so much. She is, you know, on the other side of the country for me. And on a day that, you know, we should have really been together to celebrate our accomplishment, we couldn't be. And I just, the sadness of that is something that I don't think I'm going to shake for a long time. How have you, you know, helped yourself get through the days? How have you, you know, uh, been able to just make it through moment by moment? I mean, it's exactly that moment by moment. I think you got to feel all your feelings. Sometimes I'm so sad. Other times I'm a little less sad. I'm not going to lie. Edibles help a lot. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm also taking like all my meds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sh- shout out to the good people who make the Zoloft because that <laughs> shit is helpful. <laughs> it's important to just feel all your feelings, feel all your feelings. If you're sad, be sad. If you are you know, if you are less sad, whatever, if you're anxious, be anxious. But I also think that on top of that, you got to reach out to people, you know, like I live alone. And, um, you know, and that shit is tough. And I'm really lucky that I get to spend a lot of my time in a quarantine pod with um, my friends who are lovely. But um, right now for the book release, I'm alone in my apartment in Brooklyn. And I, you know, I have a system where like, I got to talk to one person a day. Otherwise, I will talk to no one for days. Yeah, I think that's super helpful FaceTiming and, you know, even, you know, at the bare minimum texting people or having a podcast where you talk to people is very, very helpful because it it really does, you know, free you a little bit. But there was a time where you were living with a family on Long Island, right? Yeah, I um, my quarantine pod is so incredible. We you know, like in late February, made a plan for how we were going to deal with coronavirus if it was real. And uh, that shit turned out to be extra real. Yeah. So and then and then we followed through. So I lived with them, um, you know, like up until very recently, like maybe I think I've been home for three weeks now mm-hmm. um, in Brooklyn. And then I'm going to be home for um, like the rest of the, for like a month. And then I'm going back into the pod because it's good to be with people. Yeah. Well, what was that transition like going from, you know, being around such an active group to being alone? Yeah, it was a lot, but it was also a lot for me, someone who lives alone to go into living with a family at all. You know, I'm just like, wow, like (laughs) this is how the other half lives. there's, There's like, you know, like people be married there's children. That was a lot of, it was a lot of stimulus and it was very different than my everyday life. But honestly, I would not have survived those first like 10 weeks in New York. Like we were in um, Brooklyn for the first like 10 weeks of the pandemic before we went out to Long Island. Um, we would have, I would have not survived that alone in my apartment. So, you know, I, I know that a lot of people are fighting right now, you know, like online, they're like, the, the single people being like, oh, the married people have everything and the married people with children just being like, single people have so much free time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I just have to say it's it's different for everyone. Everyone's life is differently unique. Um, you got to live with the choices that you made for yourselves. But I feel like I have seen both sides of this. And um, I feel I just I'm really I just feel really lucky that my definition of family um, involves, um, you know, like people who are my friends and that we are making a community together. That's, that's lovely. Uh, what, uh, children's TV shows or music did you, uh, really find an attachment to? Um, yo, none of that shit. (laughs) Um, if like, I gotta say, if like, if I hear baby shark one more time, that is, you know, that's the final straw. I will, I will march down on the white house myself. (laughs) You know, I'm like, I like open, like make a vaccine. I'm tired of this shit. Um, but yeah, it's funny. Like the kids in my quarantine pod are six, nine and 13. The 13 year old is so cool. She's so cool. And I'm just like constantly afraid of being like not cool in front of her. So so I'm obviously not cool. The nine year old and the six year old are also awesome. They watch a lot of YouTube, which is a that's you know that's usually not my my stuff. Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, what are they watching on and, YouTube? Are they watching like nine eleven conspiracy theories? <laughs> I mean, I'm always afraid that that's what's going to come next. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like they watch a lot of like vlogs and stuff. Like it's crazy the amount of adults that make uh, content for children. I don't respect that at all. <laughs> Um, all of these like vloggers where I'm like, yeah, your entire audience is nine year olds. 
Um, not cool. Like not uh, Mr. You know, Rogers type. This is like no, you not know, Mr. Rogers. Unboxing like, like, or whatever. Jesus, Eric, you sound stuff a and, like, thousand unboxing. years old. Yeah, like I am. Um, let me tell you the best thing about being with kids though is watching them make TikToks. That yes. stuff is so. It like I. I don't know. Like my brain is exploding. These children today. I just can't believe it. And all for, you know, the Chinese government. <laughs> yes, all for the Chinese government. But you know what? Thank you to the Chinese government for this entertainment because the world is falling apart. And I was like, you know, like <laughs> I used to be a very staunch privacy advocate, but here we are. Here yeah. we are. Here we are. Yeah. Like who cares? The the world is going to be around for two more years. Just like here's <laughs> here's my social security number. You can have all $37. Yeah. Like, oh my god. And and for the people who do not get sarcasm, we are kidding. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled for this, but yeah, I'm like, a, I, I'm just saying this for the eventual podcast transcripts that will exist one day. This is all sarcastic. Yeah. So, thank you. All the bots. Amina, who are your favorite people to follow? Like, what, what's your favorite type of things to, to watch on TikTok? Um, my favorite type of thing to watch on TikTok is, man, like anything that is like an African immigrant content makes me happy. Mm -hmm. There is this man from, I want to say India, but definitely Southeast Asia that every day just shares his like report about not drinking soda. And it's so (laughs) poor. Like he's, he's, he has decided that he's not drinking soda right now. I'm with him. And so that just, it just makes me happy. So I check in and I'm like, sir, how's it going today? Um, (laughs) And it's going really well, but you know, other than that, you're like we are all trying our best over here. Um, I watch a lot of power washing videos. I watch people who paint tennis courts. You were telling me the other day that you were into beekeepers. Now, yeah, big into beekeepers. Oh, <laughs> I'm also so deeply fascinated by the families that are corralled downstairs by their parents and forced to do dances six times a day. Well, that that begs the question. I mean, if you're in this pod, you know, until the end. If you're called down to be a part of some family dance, are you all the way in? Please. First of all, the family dances have already happened. Or, you know, like, or let's remake, like, the Tyler, the creator, that TV show, you know, that he had. Oh, yeah. Um, I I always volunteer to hold the camera. That's how you get to know. That's a good out. That's a good out. That's a good out. I'm just like, yeah, I'm like, someone's got to shoot this. Yeah, literally a tripod could shoot that. What are you talking about? (laughs) Uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh. I'm always like I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna like shoot the video. But do you, you know, do you do the shake all... when they like do the the whip or anything? <laughs> oh my god, no! You're in Brooklyn <laughs> right now. You obviously spend a lot of time at home. Have you ventured out now that New York City is in this? I don't know what we're in phase. Three. Three. Well, two um, and a half. Because I went to the dentist the other day. I was a little nervous. Um, this is a dentist that I've gone to for, you know, a decade. But I was a little nervous considering, like, I don't know. Your bad, mouth is open. Yeah, bad yeah. things in the air. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised at the extreme level of, of care that they took um, with, I'm, I'm sure, everybody, but specifically with me. And I left there feeling really, really good about the experience. Have you ventured out and tried anything that you hadn't over the last whatever it is four or five months yeah like what's the biggest risk you've taken so for the first like eight weeks we did not leave our house at all like at all at all at all because we were blessed with like a backyard um but i am also a cancer survivor so i have had to go to the doctor yeah and um they're finally taking like you know like non uh super important appointments so i've been to the doctor a couple times and that was great it was great i love my oncologist she's the best um yeah how did you get there um i uh i walked it was in brooklyn so it was nice um, and then we, then I have an eye, like I'm doing all of my doctors now. I'm going to the eye doctor. I scheduled the dentist or whatever. Cause I'm like, if they shut us down again in, uh, September or whatever, because of these Florida hillbillies, yep. like I've seen, I've seen my doctors You're and, and you're going to have but, great teeth, great teeth in quarantine. Thank you. Thank you. But then like, honestly, the thing that I was the most excited about, I went and I got a frozen cocktail from the bar across the street for me to go. Oh, and, uh, I hope they never put this cat back in the box. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, I like, they can. to-go booze and walking around. <laughs> like, we are in New Orleans now? I, I'm sorry. Like, I, you know, I'm sad that it had, it took a pandemic for sure. it to happen. And that this is how we can support businesses. 
But dog, like they have got to keep the frozen cocktails to go. That situation <laughs> is beautiful to me. What do you think about the architecture of the outdoor seating? Because I think it looks like a hurricane is about it. to happen. I hate <laughs> it. I hate it. I hate it so much. The architecture of the the you know it's like the gentrification architecture. Mm-hmm, you know, like when mm-hmm. you're in LA and you just see a, a wooden fence, you just know it's like a white person just moved here. <laughs> um, yeah, I hate it. I hate I hate it so much. But at the same time, I'm just like, you know, like this is what it's going to take for now. So I'm going to suspend my um, my judgment. We don't have time to be doing like amazing design at the same time as we're trying to find a vaccine for this shit. So that's fine with me. Amina, did you have high hopes for Bill de Blasio when he became mayor of New York City? No, absolutely not. That <laughs> man, like, first of all, how he used his black family to, like, signal that he was cool. I had my eye on that since day one. <laughs> also, he just, like, wants to be president. He hates his job so much that he, like, left us to go run for In president. In Iowa, yeah. And, like, yeah, like, for months and months and months. You can't trust that man. So so none well, of this is a surprise where we're currently at and the amount of vitriol around, like, what he does on a everyday basis. It is not a surprise, but it is so disappointing. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, like, obviously, like, I didn't love him and I, like, didn't like what he stood for or whatever. But I am, like, genuinely disappointed and so appalled by how he has handled all of this. The fact that, like, Andrew Cuomo, someone who, like, we should not like at all, like, you know, seriously like also disappointing on so many levels but when andrew cuomo is stunting on you in your own city this is not good no also by the way where is michael bloomberg <laughs> well, i don't know in, like probably in space right now He's much like what the fuck happened with that he was like hey by the way you know all my money is gonna go towards taking down donald trump i have not heard from that man no since like he spent he spent like so much money running for president and then when we actually need the money to do shit for the city and for the state nowhere to be found you cannot trust rich people like you just cannot trust them and billionaires especially like no way it's just immoral the whole thing is immoral also did you read the piece that max abelman wrote for bloomberg weekly or business week or whatever it was where he spoke to a billionaire and the billionaire was like well doesn't affect me. Oh my god! Tell me about it. What the, you want me to like read the article? <laughs> I mean, no. I'm just saying that I agree with you. It's awful. It's all awful. So, uh, okay, we're we're in New York City. We are, like you said, in this good place where people can go outside and get yeah. frozen drinks to go. It's a great place. Yeah. Well, no, it's 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 better than so much of the country at this point, right? Yeah. So, Although, but it was terrible in March. It was terrible in March, and it may be terrible once again. Uh, are you sure that we're going to get to November? I mean, I'm not sure of anything. I am not sure of anything. But I am really living my life like, uh, you know, we're going to live like this for a really, really, really long time. And, you know, but at the same time, like, we got to get all of these people out of office. That's the first step to probably anything like the ship turning around. So like all of them. All of them. All of them. Like, all of them. Everyone that is a politician right now is a clown. Like, I just cannot believe these people. I, I don't want to be the person who buys into something, clearly, when we're not, you know, all the way in November when we can actually make a change. But it feels good that Donald Trump is down double digits pretty much across the board. Like, that makes me feel good. Do you... I want his cholesterol to rise, like, I, I 100 want points. everything bad to happen. And, yeah. you know, Jeff and I talk about, like, karma a lot. Like, I don't know if that's bad karma, yeah, but... Also, well, my thing is that I, I don't want him to die in office of COVID. So, so that he becomes, becomes a, a martyr. martyr. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. I, if I, I think that he has to survive this, and I think that he has to go to jail. Yeah, perp walk. Yeah. Like, the whole thing... Big trial, send him away. It's not going to happen, Listen, but it, it is it a would nice, be nice If It would be nice if his opponent was not like Weekend at Bernie's. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing is just, like, I just can't believe that this is where we're at. You know, like I just truly am, I am appalled by how democracy in this country oh, works. You mean, you, you mean that Hillary Clinton, the, the right candidate for office who would have been the greatest and most uh, prepared president in United States history would have been a better choice than where we're at right now? I mean, she would have been a better choice than where we're at right now. And, um, you know, but at the same time, 
on the Democrat side, they are not progressive enough. Like I just, we are, we are in this like healthcare crisis right now. And uh, Joe Biden, AKA Weekend at Bernie's is not running on like Medicare for all. That is appalling. Yeah. I thought this was going to be a real like uh, sort of evening of, of, of everything. Status wouldn't matter and money wouldn't matter. And we're all in this together and we're all equally at risk at, you know, to, at the face of this virus. Yeah. But, uh, that's not, the, that's no. The, no, 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 it no. matters. It matters a lot, but I think that it's why it's important to call all these people out, you know, like just, they're just so out of touch. They're out of touch. Like look at New York today. How many people are losing their jobs? How many people have died in this city and just how many people are suffering? The fact that you can have celebrities just like, sitting in their beautiful, you know, like mansions telling us to wear masks and not, you know, like even have the decency to not show the pools that they're in <laughs> is just how you know that all these people have brain worms. And it all of it, all of it is just so useless. And then don't even get me started on the like anti-Semitism of like Nick Cannon and P. Diddy and Dwayne Wade this week. And just people who have money and who are wealthy, like sure, they're famous, but they if they don't have anything to contribute to society and to the conversations that we're having right now, it's important not to put them on a pedestal and to give them platforms to just say the things they want to say. Because again, these people don't read books. Yeah. it That's, that's very well, troubling. Send them yours. And yeah, <laughs> I think that there's a, uh, it's, it's, it's also very surprising how much, uh, according to people's apologies, they can learn in one day. Yeah. You know, they can talk to a lot of, a lot of rabbis and uh, a lot of uh, people in the community and, and learn so much of what they've missed over the first 40 years of their lives. Yeah, all it takes I guarantee day. you Nick Cannon is going to have a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah <laughs> like, don't even worry about it. Did you see his latest uh, post or no, where he, he talks about, well, first of all, he had a rabbi from the Simon uh, Weisenthal Center mm-hmm. um, on his podcast. And then he followed that up with like, I can't believe that even though I, I hurt one community and now the original community that was standing up for me is now mad at me as well. For apologizing. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Nick. Oh my God. Poor Nick, you know. Um, not poor Nick. Like, let's not be anti-Semites here. Like, are you kidding me? It's just it's not it's not okay. I think that you can um I think that we can all understand that we are living in this moment where um, you know we are calling so much attention to anti-black racism and Mm -hmm. it's that conversation is moving forward in a really powerful way. And also that, um, you know, maybe, uh, black rappers and, uh, basketball players and, you know, like a lot of black people should also not be anti-Semitic. We can hold two truths and it's not about having an Olympics of oppression. Let's just like not shit on other people's freedom as we are trying to claim our own. I, like you know yeah that seems seems like pretty easy to me that's it <laughs> that's it that's it that's it that's um, it that's uh, it amina now that you have your book out uh now that you are uh here in new york in in brooklyn in phase three of of this uh whatever we're calling this sort of uh rebuilding uh what do you have on tap next and and what gets you excited as you as you move forward um you know, my on tap next is really just to rest. I, I always find it really funny when you like release something and people are like, what are you doing next? I'm like, <laughs> I, I just like <laughs> worked really hard for three years Yeah. and I am out of ideas and I have no juice or gas and I think rest is really important. And so I'm, I'm going to take a little break and see, you know, like what is like, what gets me excited to get out of bed. But um, yeah. That's that's about it. Yeah, I, right now I it's, it's really... frozen drinks. <laughs> you know it, frozen drinks, going to the eye doctor. I um, you know, like there yeah. I, I would risk it all. I would risk it all to get a facial, but um, <laughs> we are not doing that. We are not doing that. So no, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna stay home and uh just like drink water and mind my business. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and no soda. That's right. <laughs> no soda. Well, <laughs> Congratulations sincerely, Amina, to you and Anne on your Washington Post, LA Times, and New York Times best-selling book, 
The Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, available now in hardcover, ebook, and of course, audiobook featuring the vocal talents of Amina and DJ Khaled. Amina, it was so wonderful to see you the other day on my brother's Dan and Jeff's birthday. Six feet away and six stairs away, and that was so lovely in celebration of Dan and Jeff. And today we celebrate you. Congratulations. We love you, and we'll talk to you very soon. Uh, love you boys so much. Have the best rest of the day, and I will see you very soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You are Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's The Real. No apostrophe, no spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called The Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com. Go to itsthereal.com slash shop to buy some t-shirts. Go to patreon.com slash itsthereal for our Patreon. Everybody knows what a Patreon is. I'm not here to explain it. But it, if you think that it's like OnlyFans, it is. It is, <laughs> it is exactly like OnlyFans. Uh, you can also find us at twitter.com slash it's the real also at instagram.com slash it's the real we are also on spotify and google and wherever you listen to podcasts including this one we are there youtube.com slash it's the real that's the one right there all these links and more just search for it's the real we will always come up jeff now it's the time of the podcast where we love to shout people out they can be supporters they can be fans they can be friends they can be family jeff who are you shouting out right now I want to shout out somebody who just joined the Patreon, Alexander Dow. Big shouts to Alexander. Big. I mean, like, what what can you say about Alexander Dow that people already don't know? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just met the guy in this moment right here. Yeah. But I want to shout out Alexander Dow for being a part of our Patreon because there's givebacks, there's Zooms, there's t-shirts, there's fun stuff, and it is a community, and we appreciate every last person. Eric, that's a lot of words about us, <laughs> but I want to hear about Alexander Dow. Tell, tell me about Alexander Dow. I like how he goes by Alexander. You know, not just Alex or Al, mm-hmm. or A. Yeah. Full Alexander. Name. Full name. Love it. No gimmicks. Glad you're on board. Yeah. Shout out to Alexander. Also, I love that Alexander has a he has a pickup truck <laughs> yeah, that is a great thing that we know mm-hmm. about alexander dow yeah jeff i would like to shout out every person who claims that they were at our rockefeller show at highline ballroom three years ago yesterday july 26th 2017 that yep. place held 600 people the amount of people who have said they were there it's like woodstock thousands. 99 thousands Everybody was there. Everybody was there. Great time. I had I said <laughs> hi to every single person. <laughs> Shout out to all you guys. If you if you were there, if you were not there, go check out the full video at youtube.com slash it's the real. You'll feel like you were there. Yeah. Shout out to everyone at Rockefeller, Rock for Life. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. See you guys next time. Right.